Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to be here with you. My name is Clark. I'm the pastor here. And if we haven't met, we'd love to meet you after service today. Very excited because we are starting a brand new sermon series called DNA, as you can tell from the screen behind me, uh, where we're going to be looking at our eight core values as a church. You might be thinking, like, what are our eight core values? Well, this is the perfect series to find that out. We're asking the question, what makes Ritman Grace Brother and Church? Ritman Grace brother in church. What do we want to be known for? If you think about DNA, uh, a lot of people don't really know what that is. I I had to refresh my memory a little bit on it. Uh, We have kind of an idea, a concept of what DNA is, but it's, it's a molecule that contains the instructions for organisms, tells them what they need to live and reproduce. All living things have DNA within their cells. It's the certain characteristics that identifies them and marks them for being unique. So as we talk about DNA, here's some interesting facts for you. Your DNA alone could stretch from the earth to the sun and back 600 times. That's just the DNA alone in your body. If your DNA was unwound and linked together, each strand of DNA in your body and your cells would be six feet long. I mean, how amazing is our God, right? The human genome consists of about 3 billion DNA-based parts, where if you look at the DNA in those base parts, 99% of that DNA, as humans, we're alike. It's actually that 1.1% difference that makes you look the way that you are and makes you one of a kind. So why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him or her, hey, you're one of a kind. That's good conversation during lunch as well. So as you examine the DNA of our church, right? if you, look, if you took the blood of Ritman Grace Brother Church and looked at it, what would be our DNA? What would we consist of as a church? What would be the characteristics that define us or that we hope to define us? And that we're praying for these characteristics. We are not... Uh, creating them. We're not making this up. These are characteristics that God desires for us to be defined by, for His church, His bride, to live out. So what are some of those characteristics? Well, throughout this series that we're starting today, we're going to talk about the Bible, um, how we value its authority and pattern our lives after it. We're going to talk about uh, prayer, how we are people of prayer, and we pray both privately and corporately. Uh, We're going to talk about worship and how we believe that every facet of the church's worship aims to glorify God and edify His people. We're going to talk about what it means to be missional and how we are not just a people that goes to church, but we are a church that goes to people. We're going to talk about biblical community and the reality that we fully embrace the reality that discipleship happens in relationships. We're also going to talk about equipping. Uh, We believe it's not just the few who do the ministry for the many, 
but a few who equip the many for the ministry. We're going to talk about coming generations. We'll uh, leverage our influences on coming generations, helping them see life from God's point of view. And then finally, we're going to be talking about biblical giving and generosity, how we are committed to giving freely of our resources for the expense of the church, the relief of the poor, and the advance of the gospel around the world. But today, I want us to talk about that first one, the Bible. Uh, Personally, and the Bible has had a huge, huge impact on my life. Before I became a Christian, I was your classical skeptic, just classic doubter of the Bible, uh, specifically when it came to the Bible. I was under the false assumption that the Bible was this regressive, archaic, and primitive book. Uh, what could this book ever teach me, I would think? I had some serious doubts, uh, similar to what you'd read about in the Bible, about guys like uh, Nathaniel or Thomas. Obviously, I've had a change of heart since then. I've been following Jesus for over a decade now. Uh, felt the call to ministry, the Bible college and seminary, and obviously been a pastor here for a couple of years. But uh, what I see today is people that were just like me, uh, struggling in that way, and I have a passion to want to try to do you know, the best as I can as a broken person to help them understand uh, what the Lord opened my eyes to. Today, religious skepticism is growing more pervasive and more prevalent. And a lot of things contribute to the rise of religious skepticism, but let me, just, let me just throw a couple out there. One, I believe, is just the culture at large. Uh, for more than a millennium, the, the ethos, ethos of Western culture was Christian. Uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview, it was something that was respected, it was something that was taught, and even if it wasn't always lived, it was still respected and taught. We, we saw that begin to shift during the Enlightenment or what is also known as the Age of Reason. In the early 1700s, and continued during the Industrial Age, the cultural change accelerated in the modern and now postmodern age due to part and flux of many different cultures and ways of thinking. Uh, this guy named David Kinnaman, he's the president of the Barna Group, he writes in his book, Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters. He says this, many young Americans say life seems complicated, that it's hard to know how to live with the onslaught of information, worldviews, and options they are faced with every day. One of the specific criticisms young adults frequently make about Christianity is that it does not offer deep, thoughtful, or challenging answers to life in a complex culture. So in other words, uh, what he's saying is that uh, young Americans see the Bible's answers to cultural issues as too simplistic. Society is too sophisticated to pay attention to the old-fashioned ways of the Bible. Uh, they reject basic answers because the Bible says so, and they fail to see perhaps they've never been taught that they are, there are deeper reasons underlying the Bible's mandates. Another reason for the rise of skepticism is the practitioners of religion, unfortunately. Um, it's sad to say, but religious people can be sometimes immoral or dishonest or just plain mean. Uh, some skeptics have just had bad experiences with religion in the past. According to the Barna Group, the biggest reason religious skepticism has grown among millennials, uh, that would be my age group, anyone born between 1985 and 2002, um, it rests upon personal interactions with Christians who are really 
truly unchristian. Religious hypocrisy has left many people disengaged from the faith. And that's really unfortunate because we are called to be Christ-like. We can easily focus more on unrighteousness of the culture than on the unrighteousness in our own hearts. Paul says to the church in Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it's Christ that lives in me. Uh, The crucified life counters hypocrisy, and sometimes I think we unfortunately can forget that. Religious skepticism can also be caused by a desire to give due consideration to all religious beliefs. Uh, We become puzzled and confused by, uh, for many of us in society, by the conflicting beliefs, the different religious systems being promoted. There's so many religious systems being promoted. One group says one thing about Jesus in the Bible. Another group says the complete opposite. Some religious groups dispense Jesus altogether. There's no wonder that there's so many religious skeptics today. What I want to do this morning, the way I want to structure our time together, is I want to begin by just talking about why we as Ritman Grace Brethren Church believe the Bible. Why do we believe it? Why do we not just believe it and read it, but why do we submit to it? Our value here, uh, when we think about the Bible, is this. When life cuts us, we want to bleed God's Word. We will value its authority and our need to pattern our lives after it. Uh, This is rooted in what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we begin this morning, let me just ask you a question. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, why do you believe that the Bible is God's Word? Why do you believe that the Bible is God's Word? If someone asked you that question, could you articulate the reasons why you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Why is it that you don't believe that the Bible is just another book? Why are you convinced that the Bible is supernatural? Why do you put your faith in the message of this book? So ultimately, before we get into a lot of the, the meat of today's topic, ultimately I just want to say this, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that convinces a person that the Bible is the voice of God. It's the Holy Spirit that bears witness and brings testimony that the Bible is a supernatural book. I could stand up here and give you a lot of reasons why the Bible is what it claims to be, and you would not be convinced, because it's ultimately an inside work of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that there isn't a rational support for believing in the Bible there's many convincing proof, proofs that the Bible is God's Word. So what, what are those rational uh, reasons for believing the Bible? What are the logical reasons for believing that the Bible is not just another book? Like, it's not chicken soup for the soul. Today I want to give you some reasons as to why the Bible is God's Word. Reasons why we at this church value the Bible's authority and our need to pattern our lives after it. Reasons why this is part of what makes up our DNA as Ritman Grace Brother Church. So reasons why the Bible is God's Word. Reason number one, the direct claims of the Bible. If you've taken notes, you can write these down. The Bible itself uh, doesn't claim to be the word of mere men, but the word of God himself. 
Uh, as we read a little bit ago in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. It says it's God-breathed. In the original Greek, it literally means breathed out by God. Sometimes God even told the Bible writers the exact words to say. If you consider Jeremiah chapter 1, it says, Then the Lord reached out His hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. But more often, God used their minds and their vocabularies and their experiences to produce His own perfect, infallible, inerrant Word. Somewhere around 3,800 times, 3,800 times, we hear the expression, or something like it, thus says the Lord, or the Lord said. And there's many places within the Bible that we discover that what the Bible says in one place is what God says in another place. Or what God says in one place is recorded as what the Bible says in another place. Therefore, what the Bible says is what God says, and what God says is what the Bible says. And God and Scripture speak with one voice. That's reason number one. Here's the second reason. The unity of the Bible. The unity of the Bible. This is one of the most convincing reasons out there, I believe. Within the vast diversity of the Bible, there's extraordinary unity. You cannot explain this apart from it being God-breathed. So let's just consider for a minute the diversity of the Bible a little bit. The Bible consists of 66 different books that was written over 1,600 years by at least 40 different authors on three different continents and three different languages. Consider the diversity of the authors of the Bible. Two kings, two priests, one physician, two fishermen, two shepherds, one Pharisee, one tax collector, one military general, one scribe, one cupbearer, one was a goat herder. I mean, you just talk about diversity. Think about the diversity of the different literary genres that are written in the Bible. Narrative, poetry, proverb, prophecy, parable, epistle, allegory, song, legal writing. Consider the diversity of where this book was written. It wasn't like a group of people was sitting in the same library writing the Bible together. The Bible was written in the Sinai Desert, the Palace of Jerusalem, the Cave in Judea, the River of Babylon, the Land of Egypt, Macedonia, Greece, Rome, the Island of Patmos. The diversity doesn't end. And yet when these 66 books of the Bible come together, they form perfectly one book. We open the Bible and we read of one origin of the world, one end of human history, one diagnosis of man's problems, one way of salvation, one history of the world, one standard of morality, and here's one that people don't like to hear today, one design for the family. The Bible never once contradicts itself. The Bible always speaks in perfect unity and harmony. The Bible always speaks in one voice on every subject that it addresses. Honestly, ask yourself, after hearing all that, do you think that it all happens to be a coincidence? This is a supernatural book that we're talking about this morning. Third reason the Bible is God's Word, the reliable transmission of the Bible. There's no book in history of the world that has been so carefully passed down from antiquity to us today. 
If you just consider the Old Testament, it was up until a few years ago that the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was about a thousand years after the birth of Christ. And that would be the oldest copy of the Old Testament book that was reliable and that all came together. And then in the year of 1948, something really amazing happened. There was the Dead Sea Scroll Discovery. There was a little shepherd boy. The way the story is told, there was this shepherd boy who picked up a rock and threw it into this cave in the outside area, outside the Dead Sea, and it made this hollow thud sound. And then he saw these clay pots. And this little did he know they'd be sitting there for 2,000 years. And they went in and they discovered in these five caves the most amazing discovery. And in a moment, our oldest records of the Old Testament were moved back to the day of Christ. The entire book of Isaiah, the entire Psalms, the entire book of Leviticus, major portions and sections of the rest of the Old Testament, every book except for Esther was in that cave. What a reliable record that we have of this book, the Bible. And then in the New Testament, this is another amazing story. We have over 5,800 early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and almost 10,000 in the Latin Vulgate. And when we compare this to other books of antiquity like Plato or Caesar or Homer, the oldest copy that we have of Homer, there's a 400-year gap. With Plato, there's a 1,300-year gap from the time that he wrote it until the time that we have a copy of what he wrote. But with the New Testament, there's a tiny little window. It's not 1,300 years, it's 50 years and 5,300 copies. There's such accuracy and precision with the Bible that has been passed down to us, the reliable transmission of the Bible. Reason number four, the historical accuracy of the Bible. The historical accuracy of the Bible. The Bible was written with an airtight precision in matters of history and events and people. If you just consider the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, for example, um, as you read in your Bible throughout the book of Acts, and you go from town to town, Luke comments on proconsuls and rulers in those parts of the world. But do you realize that Luke gets it right every time? Even governments that are changing and the titles of the people are changing with shifting governments. And you would think that he would just once that he would slip up and get something wrong. We have had 2,000 years to try to poke holes into this. And what Luke recorded in the book of Acts is with impeccable historical accuracy. The more that the archaeologists dig into the sand of the Middle East, the more they unearth and uncover documentation for what was written in the Bible 2,000 years ago. So let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Uh, the Pool of Bethesda, which is mentioned in the Gospel of John chapter 5, for years, liberals thought and said that the Bible missed one. Until the archaeologists dug and they dug until finally 70 feet below dirt level, laying under the sands of time, they discovered the Pool of Bethesda. In the Gospel of John chapter 19, verse 13, the pavement of judgment where Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, archaeologists were able to dig and find that too. We could give example after example, and not once do archaeological discoveries contradict the Bible, they only confirm it. The fifth reason, and this is kind of a fun reason, the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Whenever the Bible makes a scientific statement, 
it's done not with the learning of that day. The Bible's never catching up with science. The science is always catching up with what the Bible wrote hundreds, if not thousands, of years earlier. If you just take the stars in the sky, for example, in the second century BC, there was a, a man named um, Hipparchus. Those names are always fun to say. He had counted the number of stars in the sky, said that there was 1,022 stars in the sky. And how did he know that? Well, he counted it, at least he says he did. Uh, Ptolemy, followed four centuries later, says that there was 1,056 stars, and that's what science believed at the time. Uh, that's what was taught in Athens and the great classrooms of the ancient world. And then Kepler, who was a great scientist, wrote in the 17th century, he said that there was actually only 1,055 stars. And then in the year of 1611, a man named Galileo invented something called the telescope. He looked up into the skies above and he saw what no man had ever seen. He said that there were so many stars in the sky, he says, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to count. They tell us today that the estimate is like 10 to the 26th power. Might come close to even estimating the number of stars in our galaxy. So why is it that when we read the Bible, we don't find some sort of outlandish statement such as, yep, there's like 1,022 stars. That's not what we read. That's what everybody believed at that time when the Bible was being written. Why would the Bible make a statement like it does in Jeremiah chapter 20, uh, 33, 22, which says, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky and measureless as the sand on the seashore. Whenever the Bible addresses things like the earth or the skies or water or outer space, uh, the human heart, the human body, anything like that, it speaks with absolute precision. Let me give you one more. We all know that people used to think that the earth was flat. If you go on YouTube, you could probably find a couple people that still believe that. If you sailed too far past the Strait of Gibraltar, they said you would go off the edge. We learned this back in junior high. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and others began to sail. Magellan, James Cook, and they discovered that the world is not flat. Sorry to spoil that for you. If you got too close to the edge, they said, you're going to fall off. That's what the science believed. And that's what the great minds of then uh, in their scientific arena we're saying, but when you read the Bible, here's what you read. This was written almost 3,000 years ago in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 22. says this, He sits enthroned, catch this, above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. What does God say the earth is? He says the circle of the earth. Isaiah did not know that, but Isaiah wrote that. He recorded that which was breathed out by God. And when you open the Bible, you're not reading nonsense. You don't read old wives' tale. You don't read scientific superstitions of the day. In the book of Job, chapter 26, verse 7, it says, He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. God is a genius. He knows it all. And whenever God speaks, He never contradicts Himself. He never misrepresents reality. So when the Bible says how to go to heaven, 
and what it's required for us to know God, we'd be foolish not to respond to what the Bible says to us because it's right on every subject that it addresses. The sixth reason the Bible's God's Word fulfilled prophecy. We could just take this reason alone and it would be sufficient. Only God knows the future. Only God reveals the future. He's preordained the future. It's nothing for God to make known to us what the future holds because He has already recorded it. If you just consider prophecies that were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, think about it. There was over 100 prophecies that were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. Born of a virgin, called Emmanuel, born in Bethlehem. Children would be killed at the time that he would be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner. He would begin his public ministry in Galilee. He would be marked by poverty, meekness, tenderness, compassion, yet be full of zeal without deceit. He would be a stumbling block to the Jews. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The price would be given to buy a potter's field. He would bear suffering for others, being patient and silent in that suffering. He would be spit upon and scorned. His hands would be nailed. He would be forsaken by God. He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be given to him. His garments would be divided. Lots would be cast for his clothing. He would be numbered among transgressors. He would intercede for murderers. Not a bone of his body would be broken. He would be pierced. He would be buried with the rich. And on and on it goes. This was hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Prophecies. Why? Because this is a supernatural book. And this is just one example. We could go on and on with fulfilled prophecies just in the Old Testament alone. The seventh reason that the Bible is God's Word is Jesus' testimony to the Bible. Jesus Christ was the greatest person who ever lived. He's the most respected person to ever walk the face of the earth. James Montgomery Boyce writes, The most important reason for believing the Bible is the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's really sad, but there's a lot of liberal churches throughout the United States that would laugh and mock certain stories of the Bible. For example, the fact that there was a literal Adam and Eve, the fact that there was a cataclysmic flood, the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire, or the fact that a fish swallowed a prophet named Jonah. But did you know that in Jesus' earthly ministry, he built his strongest cases upon those four historical facts in the Old Testament? In Mark chapter 10, Jesus affirms the historicity of Adam and Eve. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus affirms the cataclysmic flood. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus affirms that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus affirmed that a fish swallowed the prophet Jonah. Jesus affirmed the kingship of David and Solomon, uh, the reality of Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. Jesus believed the prophets spoke God's word. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus believed that every word of Scripture was inspired. And what did he say when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Number eight, the indestructibility of the Bible. We were singing about this this morning in Sunday school, actually. Every canon of history has been fired at the Bible. Whatever's going to be thrown at this book has been thrown at this book. Kings have banned it. Emperors have forbid it. 
Critics have assailed it. Philosophers have denounced it. Atheists have assaulted it. Infidels have mocked it. And there it stands. That's why in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Psalm 119.89 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. The Bible is indestructible, it's irresistible, and it's inexhaustible. It's the word of God. It's not the book of the week. It's not the book of the year. It's the book of the ages. 200 years ago, a French skeptic named Voltaire said this, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. He brought all these intellectual guns against the Bible, and he tried to undercut the legitimacy of the Scriptures. Well, 50 years later, after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased Voltaire's house in order to print Bibles in his house. And the Bibles were stacked floor to ceiling in Voltaire's bedroom to the point that no one could even walk into it. 200 years later, in the year of 1933, the British government paid the Russian government for one ancient copy of the Bible for $510,000. On that same day, an edition of Voltaire's sold in Paris for 11 cents. How do you account for the indestructibility of the Bible? How do you account that it's never outdated? That it's never old-fashioned? How do you account that we never have to update it? How do you count that the Bible is more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper? How do you count the rev relevancy of the Bible to speak to the issues of the day in every generation in history? There's no other explanation that this book is what it claims to be. And lastly, finally, the transforming power of the Bible. Reading this book you have to listen to what, let me say this. Reading this book actually changes us. It really does. When we come here Sunday morning, we're not just trying to fill up your time by looking at what this book says. Reading this book actually affects us. It gives us the true knowledge of God and ourselves. It has a transforming power on the inside. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. When people take the Bible by faith into their heart, believing upon Jesus Christ, their lives are radically changed from the inside out. And not just in some cases, but all across the board, we see this. I mean, I was an absolute mess before Christ, before the Bible. Anyone who believes in the message put forth in the Bible and believes in Jesus Christ, you will be changed and transformed from the innermost being of your life. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The Bible has the power of God within it. And I'll close by reading Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. We can read the very best of human writing. There's a lot of books out there. I was talking to somebody earlier about the um, Wadsworth Library, and there's just a lot of good books out there. But guess what? When we read the Bible, our lives are changed. 
These are the reasons we believe in the Word of God. These are the reasons that we value its authority and we pattern our lives after it. And that's why we want it to be a part of our DNA as a church. So the Bible, may we read it, may we study it, may we teach it, may we preach it, may we sing it, may we proclaim it, may we embrace it, may we counsel with it, and if need be, may we die for it. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We praise you for your word. You didn't have to give it to us, but you chose to give it to us because you're a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Lord, I know this word that you've given me, it's to all of us, it's, it's, it's transforming. It changes lives. It heals addictions. It restores marriages. It changes families. It, more than anything, it reveals to us your son Jesus and how you know, even though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for not abandoning us as orphans, but giving us your word. It's inspired. It's powerful. It's transforming. And we have it. We have so many different versions of it. We have digital versions of it. We have copies of it on our shelves. And we're not getting in it. Lord, forgive us. Help us to have a heart for your word. We know it changes us. We thank you for the inspired word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.